This is Parsha Panorama. This week's Parsha is Parsha's Emor. And Parsha's Emor is perhaps one of the most laned Parshios, maybe not in its entirety, but it is most known for the Moadim, which come up in the middle of the Parsha. But that's only one topic among many that appear in Emor, and Bezras Hashem, we're going to get to all of them. And when we do, we are going to hopefully also try to understand the connection between that topic and the many others that Emor discusses, starting with, obviously, the first topic, which happens to be the topic of the laws that pertain to Kedushas Kohanim, the holiness of the Kohanim. And what we really have to figure out is what exactly is the place of Parsha Samor in the map of Vayikra and the Torah at large, something that we always do here in Parsha Panorama, and also to understand, um, as we always try to do, um, the, the, the underlying and overarching theme of Emor as a whole, considering all the topics that it discusses, and again, of which there are many. Uh, perhaps not as many as what we found in Parsha's Kedoshim, but with Kedoshim in mind, um, it, I mean, Kedoshim is actually going to be very important when we consider the role of Parsha Semor. So, before we do any of that, let's thank our sponsors. We have um, Anonymous Luli Nishmas Shmuel Menachem Ben Ari Leib and Leib Bas Avram, and Shemus should have an Aliyah. And also a thank you to Yonah and Khani Laster for their second time sponsorship. Anyone else who wants to join that bandwagon, just reach out to me at thedatabase at gmail.com. That's thedatabase, B-E-I-S, at gmail.com to make your sponsorship today. So if I had to perhaps summarize what I understand to be the unifying theme of Emor, I would call it higher order Kedusha and Tahara. We'll see exactly what we mean by that. But um, again, higher order Kedusha and Tahara. And what that essentially means is that Emor is, in fact, continuing the conversation of Achremos and Kedoshim, which was about what again? So let's go back a little bit. We said that we are focusing a lot, um, going from the beginning of Vayikra all the way till here, it's all about the appropriate way to approach Hashem, to be Hashem's special nation, which in Shemos, in, in Parshas Yisra, Parak Yudtes, we refer to as a Mamlechas Kohanim, Vigai Kadosh. But I wanted to hone in on Mamlechas Kohanim. We are a kingdom of priests. And part of that um, is, uh, I guess one of the advantages of that is the ability to approach Hashem, to be able to have a close-up relationship with Hashem, to be able to connect to Him through the Avodah Mikdash. And so we said that Shmini presented the ultimate not way to approach Hashem, Nadav and Avihu, but everything revolving around Nadav and Avihu, with Vayikra, Tzav, the procedures for the Karbanos, these are the way to do it. And we said that part of the sensitivity of approaching Hashem requires the combination of Kedusha and Tahara. And the latter half of Shemini through Mitzorah focused chiefly on Tahara. And then Achramos and Kedoshim, we said, focused on the Kedusha aspect. And we said that, that Achramos and Kedoshim were mainly revolving around the topics of Kedusha, Achramos, it was Kedusha as it pertains to the Makom, as it pertains to the place, 
different locations have different levels of Kedusha. And then we said that there's a necessary spillover effect that's supposed to take place so that not only are there Makomos that are Kedoshim, but we have to be holy people. Right? So there are holy spaces, holy places, but then there's us, holy people. Kedoshim to you, you shall be holy. Now, when you get to Amor, there seems to be almost a little bit of a redundancy. Because what happens? We have Hashem commanding Moshe Rabbeinu regarding the role of the Kohanim. And one of the things that Hashem says about the Kohanim is, Kedoshim yihiu leloheihem, that they shall be holy to, um, to, you know, they shall be holy to their God. But the point is that He commands them with the same exact command, they shall be holy. We already just heard Kedoshim tihiu, now we have Kedoshim yihiu. So, they're holy, we're holy, we're all holy. Is there, is there a difference? So apparently there has to be. And in fact, I'll even demonstrate a, um, a bit of a, of a textual proof, even in these words, Kedoshim Yihiyu, to the difference between Kedushas Kohanim and everybody else. Even though technically, practically, we know the difference, it's pretty obvious. But as we see, just so you get a, get a basic understanding, with Parshas Emor, we are continuing the conversation of Kedusha and Tahara. I'll demonstrate in a bit how it's talking about Tahara as well, but just focusing on Kedusha for now. In this particular point of the Torah, it's higher order Kedusha, because even though there are individuals in Klai Yisrael, namely most of Klai Yisrael, who have the command of being holy, but there's apparently another, a higher order of Kedusha that is demanded of the Kohanim, and even within our parsha, the Chumash goes from Kohen to talking about the Kohen Gadol, whom they're allowed to marry, and so on and so forth. All of this speaks to the higher level of Kedusha. And as I'll also demonstrate, it's not just higher level, it's not just a difference in quantity, but maybe even in quality. It could be it's a difference in kind. Right? This goes back to um, you know, the hierarchy that we often reference in um, in these shiurim, and that is, there's a difference between Am Yisrael and Yumosa Olam. That's just how it is. Just like there's a difference between between an Eved and a free man. There's a difference between a man and a woman, and there's a difference between a Kohen and a Levi and a Yisrael. And there's a difference maybe between a Nazir and all other people. There are different levels of Kedusha. These exist, and these are just you know these are just realities. And sometimes uh, the, the, the question of, oh, he has more, I have less, that's often not an intelligent or productive question because it's not a matter of privilege, even though there may intrinsically and practically be privileges that are equipped and attached to the different levels of Kedusha. That could be true, but those quote-unquote privileges and quote-unquote advantages are for most intensive and purposes, they are really irrelevant to the individuals that do not have them. And that is because when you are on whatever level you are on, it's not just a difference in level in terms of more or less, but it is a difference in kind, which means that this is not relevant to you. It would be the, it would be the equivalent of wishing you can be a bird and fly when you are a person. It's, it's, not, it's not a realistic or even relevant 
kind of yearning that you can have the biological makeup of a bird. It, the point is it's a difference in kind. Now, that's not really, you know, the, the, this whole point itself is not really the focus of this particular shear, but I, I just, I, I reiterate this as it's something that comes up and will continue to come up in terms of the spiritual hierarchy. And I use that term hierarchy loosely because, again, it's not just a matter of, you know, of dargos, of levels, but it's, it's often, more often than not, to truly understand it, you have to appreciate it as a difference in kind. And that Hashem created each of us by um, Kirtzono. Okay, so with that said, before we get to the components of the Parsha, I'll just demonstrate a, a basic difference between the Kedusha that we have, that, that we as a nation, Klal have, versus the Kedusha that, uh, that Kohanim have, not just in the halachos, because we know the halachic differences. We know that we are able to become Tameh, for example. We're allowed to. A Kohen cannot become Tameh, at least Tamas Mace, right? And a Kohen can't go to a graveyard. So the, the, this we know. And this is just one of those demonstrations of how this Parsha does not only speak to Kedusha, but it clearly speaks to Tahara as well, the Tahara of the Kohen. There, there will be more proofs later. But... I want to talk about just in the language of Kedoshim Tihu versus Kedoshim Yihu. And not only that, but the language of Emor. Emor is an interesting language because Emor is a Lushan of Amira. It's a Lushan of just saying, just speaking. And the Parsha also begins, Vayomer Hashem El Moshe, as opposed to the more typical Vayedaber Hashem El Moshe. So we have a Lushan of Vayomer, we have a Lushan of Emor, the Lushan of Amira, the Lushan of Saying. Saying has the connotations almost of just matter of fact. I'm just issuing a statement, not, not necessarily a harsh declaration as um, is connoted by the term Dibor or Vayadaber. It's just Vayomer and Emor, say to them. So that's one point um, to, uh, to, to note. The other point is the third person. You might say, okay, what's, you know, what's so noteworthy about the third-person language? Kedoshim Tihu is second-person, Kedoshim Yihu is third-person. So Rashi actually picks up on this third-person Lashon and says, Kedoshim Yihu, what does that mean? And he says, Balkarcham, against their will. And, it says that for, and he gives examples. Later, Rashi gives examples. If a Kohen decides he wants to go to a graveyard, Beisden will go out of their way to make sure he doesn't go to the graveyard. If he wants to marry somebody he's not supposed to marry, so Beisden will smack him until he doesn't do it. And where, do, where does Rashi get this from? Where, where, where does the Chazal get it from? So the, what, the difference between Kedoshim Tihiyu, I'm commanding you be holy, versus Kedoshim Yihiyu, I'm commanding someone else about you. Right? If you're talking about the quantum in the third person, we are saying they are holy, they shall be holy, which means that you have to see to it that they are holy. Meaning, they don't have a choice in the matter. Whereas Kedoshim Tihiyu, I'm telling you to be holy, it's a command, and theoretically you can go through the emotions and either do it or not do it, but Kedoshim Yihiyu is saying that you have to see to it that they are holy. And this means that the Kedusha, so to speak, is superimposed upon them. It's a Kedusha that you can't take off, you can't get rid of it, no matter how much you try. And this this Kedusha, this... this, um, this uh, understanding of the third person speaks to the higher order of Kedusha that we keep on talking about. Okay, now let's, let's go to the components of the Parsha, to all of that. So, the specifics of the Parsha, I have a bunch of um, categories here. In all, I have eight. 
The first section is the Kedusha and the Tahara of the Kohanim and the Kohen Gadol. This includes whom they're supposed to marry, etc., etc. Section two, we have the Mumin, or the, the, the Mumin, the blemishes of Kohanim and other kinds of psulim and kehuna, things that are disqualifying factors in a Kohen, something that will disable a Kohen from serving. So this also speaks to the higher level of Kedusha, that you could be a Kohen, you, can be, you, could, ha- you could be from the line of Kohanim, but you're not qualified for some other, from other reasons. Right, Rashi, Chafal Ches, quotes the Pasuk, I believe, from Malachi, of HaKriveyu, HaKriveyu, you know, you're going to bring a blemished offering to your president, to your governor, um, even if you don't you know, like your president very much, you're, you know, you have to respect him. So, you know, we have the same concept here. Even even someone who's even a Kohen who's you know he's blemished, so you can't you can't offer that to Hashem. So, and with this, the Chumash actually transitions to what I have here as section three, which I titled as Kiddush slash Chil Hashem and the Kedusha slash Tahara of Karbanos and Shruma. And one of the main things we find here is that the the sensitivity of the karbanos requires that the kohanim have to be tahorim, they have to be pure. And it's interesting that here the Chumash highlights Kiddush and Chil Hashem. Right, that you have to make a Kiddush Hashem to make a Chil Hashem. What's, what's this doing here? So well, we'll actually come back to that. Um, but the basic explanation of this command um, even though we know it as a very broad command of Kedush and Chil Hashem, we, we hear these things, these, these things are in the world of politics, certainly, when we talk about the role of a Jew in the world. So this is one of those topics that's most often quoted in terms of the conduct of a Jew. But here, in Pashab Shah, it's just in con- the context, is just how you treat the Karbonos. Um, and the part of that is is the the, the Kiddush Hashem and the Chil Hashem, but we're going to see there's another reason for talking about this topic, which will help us also understand some of the other topics in this parsha that have very little to do with the Kohanim. So we'll come back Bezra Hashem to Kiddush and Chil Hashem, um, but we also have section four. We have mumin um, or blemishes in Kar- in Karbanos. So before, in section two, we spoke about mumim for kohanim, blemishes in the kohanim. But just like kohanim can be disqualified with a blemish, so can a karban. Here also, the chumash highlights um, different psulei mukdashim, things that are disqualified in terms of, of things that are kodesh. And you might be wondering, why is this section separated from the, the mumim of the kohanim? So clearly, a line is being drawn between Kedushas Kahuna and Kedushas Karbanos. Um, you know, the, 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 these are each their own broader topics. So we learn about their Kedusha, we learn about their ramifications, we learn about all of their disqualifiers. In section five, we get some more leftover rules of Karbanos and a reiteration of Kedush and Chil Hashem, which we had earlier. So it's interesting. More in connection to the Karbanos, we have the 
the command of Kesh Nechel Hashem. And again, we have these leftover carbonos rules, which include the seven-day rule that an animal, before it can be taken as a carbon, it has to be seven days um, with, its, with, it, with its parents. At the, it has to, similar to like a brismila, I guess. Um, the, it's not until eight days. So here we have a seven-day rule for the carbon, for the animal before it becomes a carbon. We have the command of Osova Espinolo that we do not slaughter a parent, a mother animal and its child in one day. We have the commandment of loso siro that you shouldn't leave over from the carbon. Now, a simple question you might ask is, why are these laws here and not in Achremos, where we had a lot of also um, um, carbonos leftovers? Right? Um, I'm not, not talking about no sir, but talking about the leftover commandments pertaining to the carbonos, right? Much of which we also had in Vayikra and Sav. So you would have expected, if it's not in Vayikra and Sav, so maybe it would be in Achremos. So what's it doing here? So I want to suggest that maybe the answer to that question is that Achremos was dealing mainly with the laws revolving around the Karbanos, i.e. where the Karbanos have to be offered, what parts not to eat, what to do with the blood, what not to do with the blood, everything literally around the Karbanos, but not necessarily upon the Karbanos themselves. So here, I think um, we're talking about the treatment of a carbon, right? Um, before, we're talking about rules pertaining to the offering of carbonos in terms of the conditions, we can say, the conditions for the carbonos, and, and you could say ancillary aspects of the carbonos. Here, this section is focusing on how to properly prepare the body of the animal for the carbon, what you can do with the animal, and um, and and when uh, under um, you know how when you can slaughter it, um, what what do you how how are you supposed to treat this this animal? Kind of reminds me of the difference between the different sections of carbon pesach, right? There are commands about how to cook the carbon pesach, what to do with the body of the carbon pesach, and then there are separate commands about the conditions under how you eat the carbon pesach. Um, I think we had such a division in Parsha's bow. You can go back and listen to Parsha Panorama for that, for more on that. But just to bring you a model that has a similar um, topic. Um, Rabbi Foreman had suggested a connection between the next section that's coming up, Shabbos and the Moadim, and the seven-day rule for the animal. You know, the, that we have cycles of seven. And you can look, there are clearly cycles of seven in the Moadim, which we're going to get to. Right? Obviously, Shabbos is the uh, set, you know, seven days. You have Shabbos. Pesach, you have a seven-day holiday followed by a seven-week process, a count-up to Shavuos. And then you have, in the seventh month, you have Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. And then we have another seven-day holiday with Sukkot. So there are a lot, clearly a lot of sevens in the holidays. And, and Rabbi Foreman's time in his ha'ara was that the seven day, the, 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 the seven cycle situation really begins with the animals, with the carbonos. Topic that's not for now, but just so you see, you know, while we're giving you the panoramic view, while you just consider that possibility. Um, now, why is Kiddush and Chil Hashem, you know, mentioned here again? So. I once wanted to say that, um, you know, before, earlier, you know, the Torah was highlighting the Kohanim's potential misappropriation of Kedusha in the Karbanos. But here, it reviews that sentiment because of how Klal Yisrael at large might misappropriate the Kedusha. Right, so before it was talking about the Kohanim and their relationship to the animals, to the animal offerings. Now it's talking to all of us. 
So, um, and so someone can possibly, um, you know, ch- check up on that and see if, if that's, if that's compelling. Um, I definitely, at the time that I thought of it, I thought it was, um, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm not saying I'm no longer convinced of it. Um, I just don't have um, the evidence on me right now, but that, that was the suggestion I had made, um, a number of years ago. Okay, fine. So now section six, we get to Shabbos and the Moadim, which we already spoke about. And the order, once again, is the order that we find in our calendar. Pesach, um, Shavuos, Rosh Hashanah, um, Yom Kippur, and then Sukkot, and then Shemini Yatzeris. And I think that covers all of them. And it, go, it goes through the Sphere. So Omer, just to give that the shout-out that it deserves, talks about the carbon Omer and the, and the, and the, and the count. Fine. Afterwards, we hear about the menorah and the shulchan. Now, that is strange. Like, what are they doing here? They don't seem to really be connected to anything that we've been talking about. There are drushos out there, some with pretty early sources um, that have connected the menorah, um, have viewed the menorah as actually a symbol, a hidden symbol, hidden allusion to Hanukkah. And maybe we'll get to that in a bit. We'll, we'll, we'll resurrect that. And I suggested in the same vein, and I did uh, find one dubious source that made a connection between the Shulchan and Purim. Also a conversation not for now, but you can reach out to me at the database at gmail.com if you want to hear more about the possible connection between Purim and, and the Shulchan. Um, and the, the, the suggestion here, namely being that Hanukkah and Purim, although they obviously didn't happen in biblical times, but they are they, they were forewarned, they were alluded to in, um, in, in, in biblical times. So there were, you know, the energy, the spiritual energy for those holidays existed. Now that would only explain the, the presence of the menorah and Shulchan in our Parsha on a very sodostic and adrashic level, an agadic level, um, I'll peep shot. It's very hard to understand what they're doing here. And we'll, we'll come back and try to explain that. And then finally, section number eight, we have perhaps the weirdest part of the Parsha, only in terms of the departure of the normal um, mode of Sefer Vayikra, which we had mentioned at the beginning of Parsha Panorama for Vayikra, was that mainly we're focusing on laws. We said that Vayikra and a little bit and Sav, a little bit have narrative, Shemini has narrative, but they're really only two real narratives in Sefer Vayikra. The one in Shemini made the most sense, and everything we said in Vayikra really revolves around that story of Nadav and Avihu. But nothing seems to revolve around this story. And it's the story of the Makalel, the individual who was half Egyptian, half Israelite, and for one reason or another, he gets into a fight with an Israelite, presumably from Shevet Dun. And the Chumash says that he curses the name of God, and then they, they're not sure what to do with him. They put him in a, in a, in a, in a ward, in a prison, until they find out from Moshe, from Hashem, what to do with this man. And eventually they stone him to death. And then the Chumash, right after that, very, very strangely, um, decides that at that point um, to also teach us a bunch of rules regarding the penalty for many cases in Dine Mamanos and Nazikin, you know, financial crimes and, and domestic violence. And certainly, you know, and what happens when you, when you 
um, when you damage someone's animal, which again seemingly has nothing to do with anything that we're talking about. Why? Why is this topic even here? Very, very strange. Very strange that it, this exists in Sefer Vayikra. Very strange that this story is put here in Parshas Emor. And it, you know, the, like this is one of the stories that, by itself, okay, by itself, it's not really hard to understand. There, you know, bad things happen sometimes, and the midrashim, you know, do their work to explain the connection of the story between the story and the parsha, and just the the just what's happening in the story. Um, you know, the court case with Moshe Rabbeinu, all of those things, but. You know the Makal story again by itself. You can you can talk about the story. It's placed in, in Parshas Emor and Sefer Vayikra. That's what's particularly confusing. And, and and I wish we can give more time than we are going to give to the Makal, but we're going to give it at least the 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 amount of time that would be required to get a basic understanding of its place in our parsha. Because again, by itself, you could theoretically understand the story. Its place in Vayikra is much more dubious and hard to understand, right? If I asked you before, unless you were an expert in Parsha, if I asked you um, what Parsha is the Makalil in, um, you know, you might not have been able to tell me it's an Emor. And you know, again, it's one of those things, if you know it, you know, and if you don't, you don't. But there's nothing other than maybe the, Midra, the Midrashim that would have led you to understand um, any association between the Makalil and this Parsha. So Bez Hashem will spend a little bit of time on that. And that, that's really all the topics. And I'll just run through them really quickly once again. Some of these topics we spent plenty of time on already. But number one, we have the Kedush and the Torah of the, Kohan, the Kohanim and the Kohen Gadol. Number two, we have the disqualifying mumin or blemishes. Three, we have the command of Kedush and Kedush Hashem in connection to the Kedusha and the Tahara of Karbanos and Shruma, all the, the Matanas Kohanim. Fine. Number four, we have the Mumim, or the disqualifying factors in Karbanos. Five, we have some extra rules regarding Karbanos and a reiteration of Kedush and Chil Hashem. So that includes the seven-day rule for Karbanos, the Osova Espino rule, the Loso Siru rule. Fine. And then six, we have Shabbos and the Moadim. Seven, we have the Menorah and the Shulchan. And then eight, we have the story of the Makalel, the Cursor. Okay, fine. So, um, so let's. So, so we we know how we got here, right? Because we were talking. We already mentioned that that we are looking at kedusha and tahara, and this is going to be a higher order of kedusha and tahara. Fine. So we said that. Now that we're, you know, we spoke about being holy people, and now we're talking about some really holy people, right? The, the difference in kind of the, the Kedusha that, that the Kohanim have, and something that we can maybe tap into too, because we are Hashem's Mamalechus Kohanim, that we mentioned earlier. But what I want to focus on is how in the world did we get to Shabbos and the Moadim? Even if I will grant you that there's some connection between the Karbanos, the seven-day rule, and the cycles of seven that we find in Shabbos and the Yomim Tovim, right? Even if we grant you that, um, you know, it seems pretty tangential, right? Okay, we were talking about Karbanos, and then the number seven came up, and now the number seven's coming up again. That, that alone wouldn't be enough. So the question is, what would be the connection between the Kohanim and the Moadim? Right? And then after that, we'll talk about you know the menorah and the shulchan, how that got thrown in there. And then we'll come back to the makalel. Sound good? Okay. So 
Kohanim and Moadim. What's you know what what what's the the overarching theme there? So as we mentioned earlier, this is a parsha about higher order of kedusha, and if we understand that. And if we think about how in Achrimos and Kedoshim, we were talking about different manifestations of Kedusha, different, um, you know, different, uh, not, not just different manifestations, but different dimensions of Kedusha, right? We spoke about Kedusha in Makom, in Achrimos, Kedusha in a human body, in Kedoshim. So now we are taking that a step further. We are focusing in, again, on Kedusha of the, of the body, Namely, the Kohanim and the Kohen Gadol, different levels, fine. Maybe different levels, different kinds. But also, there is a Kedusha in time. right? We spoke a little bit about the Sanachimos in terms of Yom Kippur, though the Chumash itself really puts Yom Kippur as an afterthought. Really, the, the emphasis is on approaching Hashem in the Makom HaKodesh, um, in the, the Kedusha Samakom. Here in Parshas Emor, when we talk about the Moadim, what we are really focusing on is the Kedusha of time, Shabbos Kodesh. Right? Shabbos is, itself is holy, um, and its holiness is Kim of Akaima, fine. And there are other manifestations of Kedusha in time. So every, you know, every Yom Tov has a little bit of an energy of, of Shabbos in it, and each day of Yom Tov does not have the same level of Kedusha as Shabbos, as we know, because Kedusha is usually reflected by Ister Malacha, things that you cannot do, right? Because wherever we have, um, you know, abstinence, or wherever we have a withholding of the self, that's usually um, um, a representative of Kedusha, um, right? It, it, it's demonstrative of Kedusha, thing, you know, where you put, wherever you put caution tape, so that, that says that this is holy, this is special, Right? You stop what you're doing because this is holy. And just like if someone's speaking and that person's important, you'll stop what you're doing. It's the same thing when it comes to Malach on Shabbos and Yom Tov. So Yom Tov is obviously not the same level because you're allowed to, for example, cook Ochel Nefesh. You could do that on Yom Tov. Um, maybe not on Yom Kippur. So Yom Kippur reaches, again, a higher Kedusha. Maybe not quite as high as Shabbos, but it's up there as well. So the point is that we have different levels of Kedusha as it pertains to time. Okay, so the, and that would be the basic explanation. When the Kohanim, um, um, you know, when they, when they have to be in the base of Mikdash, so they, you know, they serve in the base of Mikdash every day, but there's a marked difference between their service in the Mikdash on a regular day versus their service in the Mikdash on Shabbos or on Yom Tov. And the Yom Tovim, the Kedusha in time, is something that all Jews tap into. So the reason why this is important is these higher orders of Kedusha they, you know, you can, you, 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 it's very clear that you can't just say, oh yeah, Kedusha is something for Kohanim and not for me, right? Kedushim Tihiyu talks to the Kedusha that we're supposed to have, and so does the Kedusha of the Moadim, because if there was a holy time, that means that there's some spiritual um, auspicious nature to the time, which demands our treatment of Kedusha to it, and therefore, Kedusha is something that Jews of all kinds have to be conscious of, and have that, that consciousness has to be reflected by our actions on those special holy days. Okay, so now why are the laws of the menorah and the shulchan thrown into the parsha right after the Moadim? So we already spoke a little bit about uh, the, the, the remez and the sod 
of Hanukkah. So you look at the Balaturim here, and also you look at the Ramban and Parshas Bahaloscha, very clear that they, uh, that they understood that there were connections between Hanukkah and the menorah that's in our Parsha. And again, I threw out there the possibility that the Shulchan is connected to Purim. The Shulchan being the counterpart of the menorah, and Purim often being the counterpart of Hanukkah. And if you want more on that, again, I told you where to reach me, the database at gmail.com. But in the meantime, let's, let's try to get to some, some more basic levels. So there is a Pshat answer that's offered. We find the, the Ibn Ezra and the Rashbam, they give Pshat. And I want to focus on a Pshat that overlaps both of what they say, that the, um, the, the, the difference between what they refer to as Ishe Moed versus Ishe Chol. Ishe namely referring to the fire offerings, things, or really just the, the food offerings. So the Ishe Chol or versus the Ishe Moed. The Ishe Moed meaning the special carbonos that you offer on the Muadin. So we complement that by focusing on the special meal offerings of every single week. Right? And we had the Lechem Apanim, that's, that's the, the, the Shulchan, which were uh, consistently, right, they, they were Lifnei Hashem Tamid. They were always before Hashem, and they were there every single week. And the point is that you might say, and we'll, we'll connect this to another, a, a similar idea, that once we're talking about these things, the idea is that yes, there's a special kedusha that exists on the Yom Tovim, but don't forget about the day-to-day services. And they basically understand that the main aspect of the, the menorah and shulchan parshios that are thrown in here, the main focus is the shulchan, and the menorah is just the counterpart. Wherever you have the shulchan, you have the menorah as well. So whether or not you're convinced by that, I want to take it to, uh, to another level, slightly more level of drash, but I think this is a drash that can speak to Pashup Chad as well, that, once again, complementing the conversation about the special Kedusha of Yom Tov, we have actually daily symbols of Kedusha and Tahara. So, for example, the Lechem Aponim is referred to as Kodesh HaKadashim. And both the Menorah and the Shulchan are referred to as Tahor. The Menorah is called the Menorah HaTehora. The Shulchan is called the Shulchan, uh, it's referred to as Tahor, it's described as Tahor. So we have Kedusha and Tahara infused in the Menorah and the Shulchan. And both the Menorah and the Shulchan, says Roshan Hirsch, are described as being Lifnei Hashem Tamid. The Timidos speaks to the idea that there's a constancy, a... a um, a perpetuity of the of the of, of the menorah and the shulchan. These are these represent sensitivity to kedusha and tahara during the day to day, you know, the day in the day out that we don't have in every other yom tov necessarily. And what this says is that just like we said in Achimos kedoshin, that there's kedusha smakom and there has to be a necessary spillover effect into the regular quote-unquote, individual, that we have to also infuse ourselves with holiness. Perhaps Emor speaks to that as well and says that just like there are really holy people and really holy times, there has to be a spillover effect even to regular times, the day-to-day, the regular work week. The, and those, that's perhaps represented by the Shulchan and the Menorah that are Lefnei Hashem Tamid. Okay, and that, that, that can maybe also be connected to Hanukkah and Purim as well, which are 
sort of Yomim Tovim on the one hand, but also they are days of Chol on the other hand. Okay, so, um, you know, if, if you have that explanation. And just um, the more parenthetically, the Or HaChaim points out that the Shulchan and the Menorah also continue the list of sevens that we've been talking about because we have the six side branches plus the central stem of the menorah. And says the Orachayim, we have the six rows of bread plus the, the Shulchan's base, which he says um, um, can be added up for the seven. Okay, so these are just some different explanations that can help, um, that can, that can help resolve this question of why we have the Shulchan and the Menorah here. Now we come back to that, that final issue the narrative, which seems to be super misplaced. It's like, where do we throw this one? And, you know, in a, in a fairly packed partial like Amor, you know, we didn't necessarily need this here. So the question is, why, in fact, does the Torah present the story of the Makalel, the cursor, here at the end of Amor? And also, why did Hashem command the civil laws of damages here? Right, so without getting into the the depth of the origin of this half-Egyptian, half-Israelite man, who apparently, you know, right, the Midrashim talk about his connection to the the man that Moshe Rabbeinu killed in Mitzrayim. There's, there's plenty of, of agadic you know, excerpts about that, and I, and I wrote a very thorough essay on this. Also read by Jesse Horn from Hakotel. In his book, Double Take, he has a lot written on this story, which I was also myself mechaving to, um, and um, you know, if, if you want to hear more about that, so you could also reach out to me at the database at gmail.com. But while there's plenty to be said again about the backstory of this individual, the basic, basic gist of the story, which is clearly a tragedy, is that one thing led to another. There was a fight between this, you know, this you can say he's a full fledged Jew because his mother was Jewish. He just looked a little bit different, you can say. He was, you know, he happens to also be Egyptian. But this full-fledged Jew, this full-fledged, um, you know, this, uh, this Ben Yisrael, so he got into a fight with another Israelite. And because this fight happened, he was led to curse the name of God. Now, this sounds almost like a, you know, a classic, but also not so classic because it's of biblical proportions, no pun intended, but a, a story of a guy going off the derech in a really bad way, having a very bad experience, um, you know, in, in the Jewish quarters, bad um, experience with, with his orthodox counterparts. And, you know, that, that's what this sounds like. And there are midrashim also to back this up, that there was really a fight that broke out about... Um, the, the patrilineal descent, the legacy, the pedigree, which this individual did not have because his father was an Egyptian man. And he wanted to find camaraderie and mainly housing among the Shvatim. And he wasn't going to get that. And in fact, he legally lost the court case. And then he cursed God. Now the question is, did he just curse God on his own or maybe something led to him cursing God? Right then, again, many different explanations. There's a midrash that, that connects the Mikalel to the Lechem Aponim, that he was making fun of Lechem Aponim. And once again, I have a lot written. I have at least two essays talking about the Mikalel. But what I wanted to focus on is 
the basic part of the story that we can understand, and that is that this man was in a fight and then it led him to curse in God's name. Now, I think there are two important layers to this story that speak to the Makalel's place in Parshas Emor. And this brings us back to the mitzvah that was, that was floating around earlier, the mitzvahs of Kiddush Hashem and Chil Hashem. You're wondering why these are in our Parsha. Well, let's revisit that right now. Kiddush Hashem and Chil Hashem, in the Parsha of Emor, which we've been saying, focuses on the higher order of Kedusha. So we've talked about Kedusha's Makom, Kedusha's Aguf, and Kedusha's Zman, right? Time, place, the human body, fine. But the holiest thing that exists is the Kedusha's Shem Shemaim, the Kedusha's Hashem, Hashem's Kedusha, which is manifest in his name, right? Hashem, that's what we call him. We call, we call it his name because that's the only thing we can really know about Hashem. And there are many ways that Hashem's name can be disgraced. The Kedusha Shem Kemayim, no, sorry, the Kedusha Shem Shemayim can be disgraced and besmirched. And you can look at the story of the Makal and say, hey, the Makal crossed that boundary, and therefore he had to die for it. And no one is defending him for doing that. He does get stoned to death for that reason. But while we spend a fair amount of time focusing on the cursor, we should spend at least as much time focusing on the precursor, if you will. And the precursor, whether or not this guy won his court case, might be inconsequential to the fact that there was a larger story here. And the real reason why this man cursed God's name, and perhaps the real reason why anyone would curse God's name and walk away from the Derech Torah, And that is because of the experience that they had. Not just about losing and not getting their way, not just about the halacha, you know, the halacha being in opposition to their own Ratzon, but that, you know, that all comes with the experience that they had. And the Chumash tells us that a fist fight broke out, that there was a brawl, and that perhaps never should have happened. And that might be why the Torah goes into the civil laws of monetary damage. Because part of the monetary damage is also the damage to a person's body. Anything. All the Dine Mominus. Dine Mominus is a headquarters for Chilil Hashem, which we're already talking about now. Right? There's the, you know, the sensitivity to Kedush and Tahara, which many religious fanatics might have. The Kohanim. Right, uh, the the someone who we might say is a Haredi, when and I don't necessarily refer to a sect, but I'm talking about a way of life, Yoreshamayim, people who are what we might call again not referring to a sect, but someone who is ultra orthodox in his hashkafa, someone who really is sensitive to halacha. So if you are sensitive to kedusha and tahara then that must start at the Kedusha Shem Shemayim. And that means if you are going to do something that is going to risk the Kedusha Shem Shemayim, then maybe someone else, because of you, will curse the name of God. So you are complicit in that Kedusha, uh, you know, the, 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 the Chilol of that Kodesh. And I think that speaks to the place 
of the Mikalo here in Parshas Emor. And gives us plenty to think about, not just for this week's Parsha, but for, for life in general. We've spoken about the Kedusha of the Kohanim, the Kedusha of the Makom, the Kedusha of the Zman, of the Yom Tov, and the Muadim, and of course we have the Kedusha Hashem, the, the, the holiness of Hashem's name, which can never be forgotten. Okay, but that takes us through Parshish Emor. In Bezra Shem next week, we will, um, we will be at um, Baham Kosai, which I believe is also a double Parsha this year, and plenty to talk about there. But that takes us through this week's Parsha. Thank you for joining us here at the database, and I hope you have a wonderful Shabbos.